0: The question asked of Jesus' disciples on Easter morning is an appropriate one for us today. Why seek ye the living among the dead? Do we believe in a Savior capable of forgiving, loving, and ultimately exalting us? If not, we need to spend time considering, as did Peter and John, the empty tomb. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine, New Testament, episode 25, He is Risen. Today we'll be discussing Jesus' resurrection. And to start off, I think it's, uh, first of all, if you have a question about any of the lessons that we've covered, this is our final lesson on the Gospels, our final lesson in the normal curriculum. Uh, but if you have a question on anything we've covered or anything that's coming up, please email me at gt at and, or uh, inbox us on Facebook, and please remember to leave us a review on Facebook or on uh, iTunes. Your five-star reviews help us to find more people, and we, they're much appreciated. So um, I say it's our last lesson on the gospel in the normal curriculum because uh, sometime in the next few days I'm going to do a special episode, and I'll explain a little more about what that is uh, as we go. So to begin talking about the resurrection... I'm going to back up a little bit, and as I often do, into the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And we're going to read from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. And I think the reason for that will become clear. If you remember, the, um, the 37th chapter of Ezekiel is this recounting of Ezekiel's vision of a valley of dry bones coming to life. So... um, 37, Ezekiel 37, verse 1 The hand of the Lord was upon me, and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones, and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, they were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. And he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, and behold a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. So if you talk to any Jewish person at the time of Jesus about the resurrection, this is the image that it's going to summon into their mind. And it's very, in my, in my mind, the image that it summons is from, uh, I've said this before, but it, it seems almost like a science fiction movie where uh, I can think of a couple of different movies where they either create flesh or they're creating an artificial person and they are using a computer and it shows in, in vision the the bones being created. And then the um, the one I'm thinking about specifically is the fifth element where the, the computer generates a person and then covers it with skin and then they shock they shock her in order to bring her to life, to put the breath into the, into the body. Um, but what, what would have been summoned in the mind of a Jewish person would have been uh, the 37th chapter of Ezekiel and whatever they imagined. And at the end of our episode, we'll actually hear a rendition of a song written by uh, Kendra Lowe this year and sung by the Encanta Choir about this very chapter. And if you, read, if you continue to read... Uh, in Ezekiel 37, then said he unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried, our hope is lost, we are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves, and cause you to come up out of your graves, and bring you into the land of Israel. So the resurrection was closely tied to the gathering of Israel. In fact, it was more a metaphor for the gathering of a of an exiled and scattered people than it was a real idea. That's why it was so easy for the Sadducees to not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now, it's, I'm not trying to say that it was a common Jewish belief that people wouldn't be resurrected, but when they thought of being resurrected, what they thought of was, this is how our people will be gathered, will be will be pulled out of our graves and all at once brought into the land of Israel. They didn't think about being uh, gathered before the resurrection the resurrection and the gathering were one event, I guess I should put it that way. And what does that do? In, in, I, in thinking about this, I thought, what does that do to the idea of a personal God? Uh, it means that God cares about you because you're part of uh, a people. You're part of a, a group identity, uh, in in my mind, right? This is This is how I'm imagining they must have felt about the resurrection. And what happened on Easter morning, was that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he showed that this is, a, this is a personal event. When resurrection occurs for you, it will be very meaningful, and it will be between you and God. And it, you personally, you individually, are going to rise from the dead because Jesus rose from the dead. And it, it, it tells us how much God cares about us as individuals not just because we're part of scattered Israel and we're going to be brought back into the land of Israel one day, but because God cares about us enough that he's operating the plan of salvation as a whole and in each of our lives, in each of our spiritual paths, that plan is operating and resurrection is a part of it, a crucial part of it. Okay, so that, that brings us a little more current uh, and we're also gonna back up um, to last week, uh, some of the events from last week's lesson and talk about some things some events surrounding the death of Jesus Christ but uh, the first first question I would ask that one of the things that is most notable in this uh, lesson in the in the events that we see are the presence of some people we haven't paid a whole lot of attention to. So you remember Christ's teaching as he's journeying towards Jerusalem his his disciples first of all he's saying, I'm going to leave you right I'm going to be gone I'm going to they shall betray the son of man and lift him up and murder him, etc. And the disciples are arguing who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, obviously they're, they're believing in their minds that Jesus would be at the top, but who's going to, who's going to be his first lieutenants, right? Who's going to, who is he going to depend on the most? And Jesus chides them a little bit and says, whoso would be greatest among you, let him be your servant. Now, there's a sort of, a, a, to me, a little bit of an irony there because, and I'll explain why. Uh, Jesus didn't let too many people be his servant, or to put it another way, I don't, I don't imagine it was on purpose on Jesus' part. Um, there were not that many people who had something that Jesus needed that he couldn't provide for himself. So we saw with the, in the incident of the multiplication of the bread that he didn't need someone to feed him. He didn't need clothing. He told the disciples, you know, the laborer is worthy of his hire. And yet, there are there are some examples that we have in the scriptures of people serving Jesus and giving, providing things for him that he was not in a position to do for himself, or perhaps he chose to bless others by allowing them to bless him. Uh, and most notably, of course, There are many people in the second chapter of Luke and in the first chapter of Matthew where it talks about the birth of Jesus. So Mary and Joseph topped the list, obviously, but the wise men, the shepherds, they came and worshiped him, they brought gifts. But after the time of the birth of Jesus, we don't have a whole lot of examples of people actually serving Jesus directly. So I want to read one example that we do have, and this is in Luke chapter eight. You may have heard of this, uh, you may have heard of this idea but Luke, Luke chapter 8 is the story of, well, Luke chapter 8 is the beginning of the teaching in, in parables. But before that begins, I'll read the first three verses. It came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village. Now, this is after he heals someone. It came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women... "...which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance." And then the chapter goes on to discuss Jesus' teachings uh, through parables. So these women are ministering to him of their substance, meaning they're supporting Jesus financially. Now, this is only found, this is really the idea is only found in this one place in the Gospels. And uh, one I, one hypothesis that scholars have is that uh, in Jewish culture, a woman, when she was married the first time, her parents exercised a great deal of control over how that was gonna look, uh, what whom she would marry, and finan- the financial arrangements that would happen. But if her husband were to die... Then she would control the estate that he left behind, obviously, and so uh, a widow in in Jewish culture would have a great deal of wealth. Now, uh, it may be that these women were widows, or some of them were widows, and they and they had the the wealth that God had blessed them for the purpose of blessed them with for the purpose of perhaps providing for his son and his son's ministry. In any case, Jesus seems to have accepted graciously their help. Uh, And elsewhere in in the Gospels, Jesus says, if anyone, he says to his disciples when he sends them out on their mission, he says, if anyone gives you so much as a cup of water, they shall in no wise lose their reward. So as we talk about the, the, let me put it this way, there seems to be a bias in the, not there seems to be, there's obviously a bias in the writing of the scriptures that women are not featured as prominently they weren't considered as important. It's, it's clear in ancient cultures, not just Jewish culture. Jewish culture was more egalitarian than, than most. But in ancient cultures, women just weren't as important. However, uh, we have some very, very strong clues here that Jesus didn't share that view in any respect. In fact, uh, with I don't want to get into the trap of patronizing women because I've, I've heard before, I've heard it said before that Women are more spiritual than men. I've heard this said uh, over the pulpit even. I don't necessarily agree with that assessment. Um, I think women and men both have their strengths and weaknesses. Some of them are spiritual, some emotional, and they can be wonderful and they can be terrible. Uh, Nevertheless, women, as as the general authorities, are so fond of teaching. Women are men's equals in the eyes of God. And now we have very, very strong proof of the profound respect in which Jesus held the women in his life. That when he told his disciples, whoso would be greatest among you, let him be your servant, uh, he could have as easily said, let her be your servant. Because the, the people serving the disciples, the entire ministry of Jesus, were the women that followed them and ministered unto him of their substance. So why shouldn't they be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It seems to me implied, without possibly without the intention of Luke, who who writes about them, uh, but an interesting an interesting idea. And it came to me because it's the women who are still ministering to Jesus. Now let's paint a little picture of what happened. Jesus has been we we talked last week about how devastating it must have been to lose their Messiah for anybody following Jesus, because a, a a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. The job of a Messiah is to conquer and to win, to be victorious, to bring autonomy and self-rule and, and the power of God on the earth to God's people. And so if he dies, then he didn't fulfill his if he dies from anything other than old age, then he didn't fulfill his heavenly calling, and therefore he wasn't a Messiah at all. And so the entire assumption that they've all been basing their, their lives on, that they've been willing to leave everything behind, right? God said to, Jesus said to Peter and Andrew, leave your nets and come follow me. And they did. So they left everything. They left their father and his boat uh, what was probably a prosperous living. And everybody had left, Matthew had left his customs table, right? They can't just go back necessarily and and take up. It, or maybe there would be difficulties to that. Certainly for Matthew, there would be. And it would be so devastating to be in this position where all of a sudden Jesus is dead. Well, these women would have felt the same way, if not worse, because not only is he dead, he's gone the, the man who, in in whom their spiritual hopes had rested, but also they'd, they'd imparted to him of their substance, and now it's just all gone. So they could have chosen to be bitter about this. Instead, what do we see? Uh, we see in, then this is throughout, the the four Gospels all have different accounts um, relating fundamentally the same thing, but but the idea is that, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they go to Pilate and they want the body of Jesus. And Joseph of Arimathea takes a fairly significant risk. Uh, Here's another example of somebody serving Jesus to associate himself with a dead traitor and to say, I'll take the body of Jesus, please, and, and see to it and bury it. He's showing respect for someone who has been condemned to death by the governor and making it known that he's doing that. So, when he, as he does that, now he and Nicodemus wrap the body up. They put it in the spices, and they wrap it in linens. They put a separate napkin for the head. It describes these kind of things, which uh, becomes a, we don't know quite the significance of it, but it becomes important. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about the, the symbolism of, of that wrapping. Then, the, uh, then he leaves that in his new tomb that he's it's, he's hewn out of the rock. At great expense, no doubt, to carve a cavern out of the rock is not the same as finding a cave, a natural opening, or constructing a building and building the walls. You have to chisel out every chip of the stone inside that tomb. So he's willing to give that up that he's built for his family and allow Jesus, this person he barely knows, to occupy it. Uh, well, what do the women do? They they observe where it goes. So as, I don't know whether if this is me reading into it, but uh, they may have, it may be that they noticed the preparations that Nicodemus and Joseph were making. And uh, as often happens, they didn't think they were doing a good enough job at it. And so they wanted to do it again. Or maybe they maybe the men knew that they weren't doing a good enough job at it and they were just doing the best they could in the limited time they have before the Sabbath. In any case, the women had marked where the body went and they resolved that they would come back after the Sabbath was over and perform those preparations that would do proper respect to the body. Now, these women could not have had an earthly motive at this point. There was no more earthly motive to follow Jesus. They didn't, perhaps they understood that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, but if so, they wouldn't have been so concerned about preparing his body for its long resting period, right? They, they may have understood his sayings about rising from the dead, but probably not because they are very concerned about what happens to his body. And therefore, they don't have a hope. Jesus is going to come back to life and he's going to smile on me for treating his body well. I'm going to, I'm going to gain increased status with the disciples if I treat his body well. Other people are going to see what I'm I'm doing and they're going to value me because I'm treating his body well. They would have been experiencing personal heartbreak, perhaps despair, certainly confusion, and they decide to take care of this body for no other reason than that they love Jesus. And the the absence of Jesus' 12 apostles here is, is very striking there is some evidence that John was present in the final hours of the crucifixion, and Jesus tells him uh, to take care of his mother. That's how we understand, understand the saying, um, behold thy mother, mother, behold thy son, right? He's saying to John, take care of my mother as if she were your own, because I won't be here anymore. Uh, profound trust he places in John. Nevertheless, uh, John wasn't there the morning of the resurrection to take care of the body of Jesus. And so I just thought I'd mention that at the beginning of the lesson, which is to say that Jesus had obviously held the women in his life, these women who were serving him, in such profound respect that, according to his own teachings, they had earned the place of greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And we'll see how he showed that uh, in the in the following events. So the I mentioned last last lesson that. The Jewish leaders go to Pilate and they say, okay, we remember that Jesus, before he died, he taught his disciples that he would rise again from the dead. So we're a little worried that they're going to steal his body and pretend that he's alive. Let's seal the tomb and place a guard on it. So we talked about that. And there are Roman soldiers guarding the body of Jesus. The the stone that has been rolled across this opening is probably about a foot thick and maybe five feet high. So it's a a circular stone five feet high, a foot thick, or or thicker and taller. Uh, Certainly thousands of pounds of stone. One person could not roll this away. And then they would have sealed it either with a wax seal or perhaps a lead seal, something that would make it apparent if the seal had been broken. So Saturday goes by. Jewish custom prohibits anyone from hanging on the cross during the Sabbath. So... They make haste to get him into the tomb and seal it up before the Sabbath begins. Uh, another note, that, something that I've never really paid attention to before occurred to me, which is they, these women, and obviously the, other, the male disciples of Jesus as well, they cared so much about the Sabbath that even at the death of their Savior, at the death of their Messiah, they weren't willing to break the Sabbath to take care of his body. Now, Jesus showed on many occasions what seemed to the Pharisees to be disrespect for the Sabbath. He was willing to walk on the Sabbath. He was willing to pick kernels of wheat from their stalks and eat them on the Sabbath. He was willing to heal on the Sabbath. And he was accused of not respecting the Sabbath. And now we have the example of the profound reverence with which the, in which the Jesus' uh, Jesus's disciples held the Sabbath. They were not willing to do something they knew was outside of the, the law of Moses on the Sabbath, even though their Savior had died, and they, it would have meant taking care of him quickly rather than waiting a day. So uh, a, a powerful example for us in, in the people that had learned about the Sabbath directly from Jesus, this is how much they cared about it. Okay, so their Sabbath was on Saturday. Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and other women show up at the at the sepulchre. So Luke reports, the end of Luke 23, the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after beheld the sepulchre and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices, anointments, and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. That's the end of Luke 23. Now, Luke 24 is the chapter with the with the resurrection. The first day of the week, they came early, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. That's in Luke. Uh, In Mark, very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came. In Matthew, uh, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Um, So particular mention is made, um, oh sorry, in Mark it says, um, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome. So, particular mention is made of a few women, but it's apparent there's a group of women there. What I'm going to do next is I'm going to talk about the uh, the chronology of what happened this morning because there are three gospel accounts. They appear to disres uh, sorry dis- not disrespect disagree in some respects. Um, most notably, the number of angels and perhaps the the order of some events. So. I'm going to talk a little bit about how these, all, these things can all be reconciled. First thing that happens, and I think we would read in the uh, first part of Matthew chapter 28, Behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. So the Roman soldiers that were guarding the tomb this seal was obviously broken and the Roman soldiers that had been guarding the tomb either fainted or ran away. And then the angel is sitting there. Uh, This is probably not the women's report, even though Matthew reports them being there almost immediately. Uh, Mark and Luke talk about the women walking into the sepulcher before they encounter an angel. And in Mark, there's one young man, and in Luke, there are two men. But all three of the Synoptic Gospels describe uh, a man in shining white garments and asking the same question, why are you looking in a tomb for Jesus? In one case, the question is put, why seek ye the living among the dead? And they say, he's not here, for he has risen. So, um you could, if you, if you were reading this with a critical eye, you could think, well, these, these accounts don't fully agree. However, when, if, you were to, if you were to ask three people to tell you the story of something that was emotionally charged and would tend to get your blood thumping as much as something like seeing an angel would, uh, one person might forget that there had been two angels. They might say, yeah, we saw this angel. He talked to us and he said... Uh, why seek you the living among the dead? Another person might say there were two men, and they might spend a little more time talking about how bright white their clothing are. So this is, uh, to me, there's nothing he- here really to to cause anyone to have a, a crisis of faith. They, these stories agree enough that they seem to be pretty consistent. So first thing that happens, an earthquake. If you remember, there was an earthquake towards the end of Jesus' time on the cross. That was when the the veil of the temple was rent. Now there's another one, Sunday morning. The stone is rolled back. The women come, who knows how much later, but they come very early in the morning. And they find two angels in the tomb who tell them, please go tell the disciples, Jesus is not here, he's risen. So they run and tell Peter and John. Uh, It seems clear from the account of John that that that's who they've told. Peter and John run for the for the tomb john arrives first waits outside and uh, i've heard this referred to as uh, an example of a, a more junior disciple or apostle waiting for the president of his quorum and paying that respect and allowing him to go in first so peter enters first and then they make a specific mention of the burial clothes of Jesus and the linens that he's been wrapped in are folded and laid down. And then the napkin over it that had been over his head is laid in its own place aside. We have a, as a symbol in our sacrament services today, a, a symbol or a remembrance of these burial clothes. When we cover the sacrament table with a white cloth and when the bread is blessed, then we uncover the bread. And then when the water is blessed, we cover the bread and uncover the water. That is what that cloth represents. Jesus took the time when he rose to fold and care for these coverings that w- with which he had been so lovingly enshrouded. And that's the same way we care for the, these emblems when we, sing, uh, when we sing about the emblems of his death one of them is this uh, cloth with which we cover the the sacrament there's another element of the sacrament which most people don't consider part of the ordinance but does have reference to the final hours of jesus and that is the sacrament hymn if you remember when jesus instrum- institutes the sacrament among his disciples they they partake of the bread and the wine and then they sing a hymn, and then they depart for the Garden of Gethsemane. So the hymn that we sing is reminiscent of that hymn. So there's more symbolism in the sacrament than you may have supposed. It's not just the bread and the water, but it's the hymn, and it's the cloth that covers it. There are certain other aspects, the order we do it in, the prayer we offer, that have symbolic significance as well. Uh, so this, there's, there's something... There may be more meanings in this to the way that Jesus has treated this cloth. There may be something there that we don't quite fully understand, but the reverence is obvious, and the fact that John particularly makes specific mention of it seems worth noticing. And Jesus is not there. They notice Jesus isn't there. The disciples... Now, remember, the the women have already had a heavenly visitation, and the disciples have not. Peter and John are in the tomb, but all they see is an empty tomb. So, John, at that moment, he, what he writes is that uh, he refers to himself as that disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved sometimes. But he says that at that moment he believed. When they found not the body in John chapter 20, verse 8, then went in also that other disciple which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. So John describes himself as believing immediately as soon as he sees the empty tomb, believes that Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, the disciples leave and go home, and the women are lingering, uh, or perhaps they're just slower to get out of there. For whatever reason, the women are around, the men are gone. Jesus appears first to Mary Magdalene and calls her by name. She doesn't recognize him at first, but or he says... He says a word to her. She doesn't recognize him. Then he calls her by name. And then she, then she turns and recognizes him. She knows that it's Jesus. And she calls him Rabboni, uh, which is master or exalted master, exalted teacher. And then she told... Then she had even more important news to tell the disciples. So she went to the tomb, went to the home of the disciples twice. Once with news she'd seen an angel in an empty tomb. And then the second time with news she'd seen the risen Lord. Neither time was she believed. So in Mark it says, Mark 16, verse 11, they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. Uh, then in Matthew, there's a, a, an account that Jesus appeared to the other women that were with Mary Magdalene as well. So here we have another evidence of the amazing respect that Jesus, in which Jesus held these women, I mean, he must have held them in such high esteem. He seems to be, this is my personal take on the events of these chapters, he seems to be preparing his disciples to see him rather than just appearing out of nowhere, because they need uh, either to be tested or to be made ready for the truths that he's going to reveal. Like, I'm, I'm alive. This is how the resurrection looks. It's not just something for the entire nation of Israel when they're gathered. It is an individual and personal thing between you and God. This is what resurrection is. They're not ready for that. And the women, because they love Jesus so much, for whatever reason, they are ready to see their risen Lord right away. Uh, it seems like a very significant fact. So they all go back and tell the disciples this. They're not believed. Then now we have uh, an amazing, the amazing story. To me, uh, this for for years of my life was my favorite scripture, and um, it is the the account of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So what's happening is they're walking to a village about let's say, um, well if you you see the word in the in the King James version, you see the word furlongs, that's an eighth of a mile. So. About 60 furlongs is seven and a half miles. They're walking maybe two hours, maybe two and a half hours. And then as, as they're walking, Jesus... Uh, I've noticed a number of things as I've read this again for the, in preparing for this lesson. One is, um, now we're Luke 24. This account is only found in Luke. In verse 15 it says, It came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near... And I loved reading that because uh, here they are, they're in, as I mentioned earlier, they're either confused or they're in despair or they're heartbroken or all three. And Jesus drew near. Then the next verse says, their eyes were holden that they should not know him. So there are so many lessons. I'm going to go over some of them, but some of them, this, this, event, this interchange, exchange that Jesus has with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, this is going to be the subject of our special episode this week, and I'll explain why in a few minutes, but um, it's such a significant and wonderful event, and there are so many lessons that we can take from it. One of them I just discovered this week, which is, Jesus himself drew near, and their eyes were holden that they should not know him because of their own heartbreak, because of what they're going through, or just perhaps because that was the plan of God, that they wouldn't know that Jesus himself is the one they're talking to. They think it's a stranger. So he asked them, what are these communications you're having with each other? Why are you you so sad? And uh, they say, what, are you a stranger? You don't know about Jesus of Nazareth? He's been killed. And we thought it was he that would redeem Israel. In other words, we thought he was the Messiah. And now, because he's dead, this, for, this supports our idea, right, that a, a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. Because he's dead, we know he's not. Because he's dead, all our hopes are frustrated. You notice these men were not at the tomb in the morning to take care of the body of Jesus. They're too disappointed to worry about what happens to Jesus' body. They're too worried about their own heartbreak, their own despair to care about the man that they had been following for perhaps years at this point. And the women were not. They they were dealing with the same feelings, and yet there they were at the tomb in the morning, and therefore were visited already by this point by the risen Lord. So they have a day of, or they have a couple of hours of walking with Jesus, and he spends this time with them, and here's what it says. Uh here he, he asked them this once they explain why they're so sad, he says these words to them. Well and they also explain why they're confused because the women have already said uh, we were early at the sepulchre. So they've they've heard about this idea that Jesus is uh, that Jesus is risen. Then he says to them, now we're in Luke twenty four, verse twenty five, he says to them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Uh, first of all, I ought to clarify the word fools. That can be translated in a, in a number of ways. He he wouldn't have said something that was rude. Um, you could translate this as unwise as you see in the footnote uh, or a couple other ways. But basically, um, when he says, ye of little faith, this is sort of like saying, ye of little understanding, right? It's not a rude thing. It's saying, I, you're missing the point here, guys. Um Luke 24, verse 26. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So when he says Christ, what he means is, he's not saying ought not I, Jesus Christ. When we hear the word Christ, we just think it's Jesus' last name. To these two, it would have meant Messiah. He would have used, probably they were speaking, uh, well, we'll talk a little bit about what the language of Jesus was. But when he said the word Messiah, he was summoning their ideas of the the Jewish messiah from their scriptures so he's saying isn't it isn't it appropriate that the messiah according to what we know of the messiah isn't it appropriate that he would suffer these things to enter into his glory so jesus now uses he first makes the statement that the the messiah it's appropriate for the messiah to suffer to enter his, into his glory. Then he backs that up with scripture. In verse 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus explains the explanations from the scriptures why the Messiah would suffer and die rather than conquer, even though it was prophesied that his kingdom would have no end. So it obviously is, this idea is supported in the scriptures. If you understand the scriptures well enough, if like Jesus says, you're not, uh, you're not of little understanding, then you will know what those scriptures mean. So then they get where these two men get where they're going and Jesus pretends he's going to keep walking, but they ask him, come sit with us. They break bread together. In that moment, they recognize him after he blesses the bread and hands it to them. And then he vanishes out of their sight. And they recognize that Jesus is, now they too, they become the first men to have seen the risen Lord. They have witnessed that Jesus, these are not just rumors, that Jesus really is risen from the dead. And then they, they talk to each other. They talk to themselves and say, did not our heart burn within us? And if you've ever felt the the peaceful influence of the Holy Ghost, that's that's what they're describing here. They're describing having this abiding feeling of love and peace that God is with you in spite of your troubles. And that's having your heart burn within you. As he walked with us by, by the way and as he opened to us the scriptures. So, of course, they immediately... Arise and leave what they're doing, walk the couple hours back to Jerusalem to talk to the disciples and let them know what they've seen and say, look, this isn't just a rumor, right? Obviously, a woman's word is less than a man's because they didn't believe the women, but these men, well, as we're going to find out, they don't necessarily set stock in it. It's just very, very incredible news that someone who is dead is now alive. It's hard to credit, in spite of what Jesus said, in spite of what everyone's seeing. You have to see it for yourself. Or at least it's better uh, if you see it for yourself. Your belief is stronger. And so uh, we're going to stop here and just talk a little bit about the main lesson that I learned that I took from this for years, which is, here, here is the risen Lord. He has two of his disciples who are sad. He wants to get across to them the idea that he's not dead anymore. To me, the obvious course is instead of approaching them in disguise and, dis- and talking about scriptures, he could say, hey guys, how are you? I notice you're sad. Look, it's me. I'm alive. I know you're sad, and you don't have to be. How easy would that have been for Jesus to do? How easy would it have been for him to stand on a street corner? How easy would it have been for him to walk into Pilate's palace and say, look everybody, you tried to kill me and you succeeded for what it's worth but death couldn't hold me and I am now the risen Lord of this earth and I've been exalted and my body has been perfected and uh, good luck with all of your earthly schemes from now on because uh, I have frustrated the devil. He didn't do any of that. He didn't do that to the powers that had condemned him and he didn't do that to even to his own disciples. Instead, He approached them with love but incognito and talked about something that they were very familiar with, which was the Hebrew Scriptures, and brought the Scriptures to life and gave them new meaning. And then he confirmed what he was teaching with the Holy Ghost so that their hearts would burn within them. Only afterward did they recognize that they'd been walking with Jesus all along. The reason this is significant for me is there are, I hope, you know, for some of your sakes, maybe you have seen the risen Lord. I myself have not. And so there may be none of you that have had that wonderful experience. Uh, And if you haven't, then join the club of these two disciples who were sad and who had heard that Jesus was risen but didn't know for sure what was going on. In that way, they're like every other person who decides to follow Jesus. They're wondering if they should believe that Jesus is risen. And Jesus walks with them. And he explains the scriptures that talk about him suffering and dying and being resurrected, that were in the scriptures that they knew and loved already. So with all of the options in the world open to him, this is the way that Jesus chooses first to testify of his resurrection, and this is the way that is still available to us so if you're if you've ever been desirous, I know I have that you could have some of the experience experiences that ancient prophets have had and witness the things that they've witnessed and have an angel talk to you or, or see the risen Lord then this is a wonderful lesson to learn that Jesus himself if he could appear to you it might be that he would consider it an even stronger or more important or more urgent testimony a better way to get across his message that all of this is real that he would come to you in the form of somebody you don't recognize and talk to you about the scriptures isn't that isn't that fascinating and We can ponder why, and there are several things that occur to me, and I'm sure there are several things that occur to you. We can talk about why, we can think about why, but the fact is that's what he did. So these two disciples, they they run back. It seems to be that in the interim, uh, Jesus appeared to Peter, because they run back and the disciples are talking like the Lord is risen, and he's even appeared to Simon, who is Peter. And so they, they're telling them, no, we saw him. He was with us on the road to Emmaus. And as they're talking, then Jesus is standing there in the midst of them. So uh, we have different events that are emphasized in different gospels from this particular occurrence. One of them is that he sits down and what exactly that he eats. One of them is the things that he says. But they agree that he appeared to them and and let them touch him, and ate with them. And Thomas, John mentions what, what happened with Thomas. Thomas is one of the disciples. This is where the phrase doubting Thomas comes from. Because he wasn't present, he hears about it later on, and he says, look, I know you guys have had this experience, but unless I see it for myself, I'm not going to believe. And sure enough, a week later, they have another experience with Jesus, where he's, he's there, he is in the midst of them. And Jesus says specifically, Thomas, come forth and and touch the nails, touch the marks of the nails of my hands, and touch the where I was pierced with a spear in the side. And you can see that it's me. And don't be faithless, but be believing. So then Thomas believes. He says, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus says, and falls to his knees and worships him. And Jesus says, Blessed you, you know, you because you've seen, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So right there is probably the most crucial lesson for all this entire set of chapters, which is here's Jesus who could bear testimony of himself by appearing and showing himself right off the bat to these two disciples. Instead, he does it through the Spirit and through the scriptures. And then he says these, these important words, he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He doesn't say that that Thomas is blessed for believing once he's seen, right? He noticed that, uh, he does take note that Thomas believes, and that's a wonderful thing. But he doesn't say, you're blessed for believing now that you've seen. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so you and I, we may feel like we're not as blessed as the disciples were because they got to live with Jesus, they got to walk around, they got to see him when he was resurrected. And yet, Jesus didn't call them blessed. He said, "Blessed are those who have not seen." An interesting concept, and one that might not—that might seem—it's uh, not obvious, it's not intuitive, that that would be the way it is. But when you think about it, it does make sense. So, let's talk about the scriptures that Jesus used. Uh, it says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them this, in all in the scriptures the things concerning himself. And this is what our special episode is going to be on. I'm going to title it The Things Concerning Himself. We're going to talk about what those scriptures might have been, and obviously we have to guess, that Jesus used to explain his role in the plan of salvation. And you'll notice he says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets. So they're mentioning two parts of the Hebrew scriptures. The books of Moses are the first five books of what we have in our Old Testament. And then the Jews divided their scriptures into three parts, the law, which is those five books, also known as the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. So the Torah the, the Neviim, which is the prophets and the Ketuvim, which is the writings, or the TNK, they also call it the Tanakh. The, it, here in this part of Luke 24 they're mentioning the law and the prophets. But then when Jesus gets to his disciples, Luke 24 again says that he explains he does the same thing, but first he shows himself and this in this case the order is reversed. First, he shows himself to the 10 disciples. Remember, Judas is dead. Thomas is not present. So there are 10 apostles there. Who knows how many other disciples are there. He explains to them, after showing himself, he explains to them how the scriptures have talked of him. And this time he does it from Moses, from the prophets, and from the Psalms. And the Psalms were, uh, you might say, what you would call, um, they, they stand in for the whole. So mentioning the Psalms is kind of like mentioning the writings. And this is a way of saying in the law, the prophets and in the Writings. So everywhere, in other words, in every part of the scriptures, there is proof that Jesus is going to suffer and die. The Messiah is going to suffer, die and be resurrected. Or at least this is the way that I read these, these segments of the, of Luke 24. Now, uh, there are the, chronolo- the chronology sort of breaks down at this point. We're not exactly sure in what order the next few things happened. Most people believe that the last act of Jesus on earth was to ascend into heaven. And what happens is he goes to the Mount of Olives, a particular place on the Mount of Olives, and then um, he's walking toward Bethany, and then he rises into heaven, and there are angels there saying, Why are you looking into heaven? Don't you know that he's going to come back in the same way that you've seen him ascend? And a lot of people assume this is the very last act of Jesus on the earth and the disciples were with him 40 days and then uh, and then they never saw him again. I'm not 100% satisfied that that is the chronology. Number one, uh, later on Paul describes Jesus as having been seen by 500 people at once. And so there is some evidence that Jesus appeared to his disciples if not regularly then periodically for some time they didn't we don't know exactly what the size of the congregation of the followers of Jesus was but it it's true that this could have happened within forty days there were probably well over five hundred followers of Jesus however this may have happened uh, this may have happened after forty days had passed there was a, a limited amount of time when the disciples could have been in Jerusalem, and then they traveled to Galilee. And the next story we have is from John 21, where uh, the disciples have been told in the other gospels, we see, we have evidence of this in, in multiple gospels, that the angels told the women who who went to the sepulcher, tell the disciples to go to Galilee. That's where they'll see Jesus again. And so um, those, those gospels don't mention the appearance of Jesus on the day of the resurrection. It's an interesting omission. Uh, in any case, then they do see Jesus in Galilee and we're left to wonder, did they, did they wait around for a week, let Thomas see Jesus and then go to Galilee and then come back and Jesus ascended into heaven? Or did Jesus ascend into heaven and then later come to Galilee? It seems odd that they would go to Galilee and then come immediately back. It's a long journey to make to, to come right back again. But in any case, so the the chronology is not set because it's not 100% clear because we have different accounts and they don't all mention the same set of events, which is okay, right? This doesn't, none of this stuff is crucial to understanding the story. I think understanding each event for its own sake is important. And so now we're going to talk about what Jesus said when he visited the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. First of all, Peter... And Andrew and James and John, they've gone back to fishing. And uh, Jesus says to them, he performs a miracle. He says, cast your nets and you'll you'll catch a ton of fish. And they do. The, the, the amount of fish that they catch, they've been fishing all night, and the amount of fish that they catch almost breaks the net. And immediately Peter knows who it is. So he jumps in the water and he can't even wait for the boat to get to land. He jumps in the water and swims to shore to see Jesus. And so a little bit later, they're... They're roasting some of the fish, they're having a meal, and Jesus says, do you love me more than these fish? Now, you've probably heard this story many times, and you may even have heard some of the Greek words that are used in this story. So we're going to talk about this a little bit. The two words that are used in our Greek translation is, are agape and filio. And these are words, one meaning brotherly, friendly love, But it has a lot of other different connotations too and then agape is sort of selfless unreserved love which which many people believe is deeper and so the point has been made jesus jesus says agap you know peter agape me do you love me with this unreserved love and peter says yes i i philia you i i love you with a brotherly love or a friendship love and uh there have been a lot of lessons taught on this difference so maybe it'll surprise you, but I actually don't agree with the, the main point of those lessons, which is that Jesus was saying one thing and Peter was saying something else. Um, so this goes back that first of all, the first qualm I have with that interpretation is that I doubt that these two were speaking Greek at all. There are two words for love that are roughly similar in both Aramaic and Hebrew. And uh, I won't go into why now, but I I tend to believe that Jesus spoke, most people believe Jesus spoke Aramaic in most of his teachings throughout the Holy Land. I personally believe from what I've read and studied that Jesus spoke Hebrew for most of his ministry throughout the Holy Land. I believe that he was able to speak Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, and however many other languages he needed. But uh, his, most of his Exchanges with his disciples would have been in either Aramaic or Hebrew and I agree I believe that this one was no different so would John have who writes about this uh, exchange between Peter and the Savior would he have remembered the Aramaic or the Hebrew words to such an extent that he was willing to render them accurately into different synonyms in Greek this this seems to me unlikely especially given the words that john uses earlier in his gospel throughout his gospel he uses the words philia and agape almost interchangeably and in fact some of the in some cases when he talks about loving god or loving the gospel or loving the kingdom he actually uses the word philio which is the the kind of that would be the kind of love you would want to be unrestrained unreserved love and yet he uses this word that many people have described as being a lesser love. To me, it, the, all of this discrepancy can be adequately explained. In, in uh, Incidentally, Jesus also uses um, different words for sheep. He says, do you love me more than these fish? Then feed my lambs. Do you love me more than these fish? Then feed my sheep, feed my sheep. So this can be adequately explained if you understand that Jesus is a Hebrew prophet and he's using Hebrew poetry, he is using parallelism by which words are often in which words are often substituted or changed for their synonyms as the as the parallel constructions are used. Right? So heart and soul is one example. I love the God love God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength. These are. This is parallelism. You're to love God, your heart and your soul are the same thing. And they're used in many parallel constructions throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and, and many times a word meant to convey the same concept is used to parallel a word that came right before it, slightly different. So that's what I think is going on here. John is just showing that Jesus used parallelism or John himself is introducing parallelism to explain that Jesus is asking Peter. So let's let's talk about what the real message of Jesus is rather than going into minutia about what Jesus what kind of love Jesus might have been asking for or what Peter was willing to give. Let's look at the context of the story. Here they are the disciples of Jesus they've spent months if not years traveling with him. Learning from him, he's been preparing them to do a work, and here they are back at their old jobs. Like I said, it's hard for them to go back. May, may not have been quite as hard for these four, because they have fathers who were fishermen. So they, the, the boats were up there probably still working, and they just went and joined on. And Jesus is saying, not these fish that we're frying, do you love me more than you know this meal we're having? But do you love the work that I have been doing with you more than the work that you were doing before that? I told you I would make you a fisher of men. And you, and you left your nets and followed me without question. And now I'm asking you, do you, did you love following me? Did you love being a fisher of men more than a fisher of fish? And, and another support of the idea that these two words for love are not different is Jesus said, you know, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter would have said, no, but, you know, I actually do have this brotherly feeling. I do philia you, but I don't have agape for you. Instead, Peter says, yes, I do. I philia you. I love you. So the two people speaking to each other seem to have agreed that these words were synonyms and they were almost interchangeable. Um, so that's not the the kind of love is not what this is about. P- Jesus is saying, Peter... Do you actually want a ministry? Do you want to spend the rest of your life doing the work that I've prepared you for and called you for? Because I have spent so much of my important time, time that is now irreplaceable. My earthly ministry is over. Are you willing to take this calling on? And he gives them three chances. Many people have said there's, you know, notice the parallel between three chances for Peter to proclaim his love for Christ in opposition to the three times that he denied Christ and i think that's very appropriate he's 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 showing he's giving peter a chance to not only see that he's been forgiven of god but to forgive himself you know later on peter probably looked back at this and thought god has accepted my forgiveness or my repentance for denying him because he gave me three chances to tell him how much i loved him and i think this is a wonderful story of forgiveness and he's also saying do you love the ministry? Do you love feeding my sheep? He asked him to be a fisher of men. He asked him to be someone who would feed his sheep, who would tend to his flock, to tend to his followers. This is another way of asking the same question. When he said, leave your, leave your boats, I'll make you a fisher of men. This is the same question. Do you love me more than you love what you're doing with your earthly life? If so, then I need you to be a fisher of men. I need you to feed my sheep. So this is Jesus telling Peter, your life now means what we've, what you and I together have prepared you to do. That is the meaning of your life for the rest of your life. And he even foreshadows that Peter will eventually be a, become a martyr for the cause. And Jesus has foreshadowed this before, right? He said, you, you'll be called up in front of kings and magistrates and principalities and You'll have to give an account for why you believe in me. But in that moment, I'll give you the words to say. So Jesus has prepared them for this. And now he's preparing Peter that this, you will eventually be called upon to make the ultimate sacrifice. By tradition, Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. And Peter, uh, he got the chance to follow Jesus into death the way he said he would. And this is Peter saying how willing he would be to do it, how much he loves Christ and, and would be willing to do that. And there are further appearances of Jesus to his disciples. One is at the Mount of Transfiguration, when he calls them to go unto all the world. This is a foreshadowing, again, of the revelation that Peter will, will receive and will study it in the book of Acts, where Peter sees that um, he sees a bunch of forbidden meats and he's commanded to eat. And this is a symbolic revelation that the gospel is not just for Jews. Not It's not only people who are formerly Jews that can become Christians. In fact, the early Christians saw no difference between a, a Jew and a Jew who was following Christ. They just were Jews who believed in Christ. They didn't think they were two separate religions and the way we do today. And what the revelation Peter received was you don't have to first be a Jew. You can just believe in Christ without having to First, believe in Moses and and then follow that whole conversion into a Jew and then become a Christian. Um, also, along that um, along those same lines, so um, the the disciples at this time, Jesus says, "Go ye into all the world, preaching the gospel into every creature." And they don't quite understand what that means yet. They for a, for a, a while, they go into the neighboring countries and preach it unto the Jews that are there that are there traveling in diaspora and it 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 is only in the following years that they finally realize that it is Christ telling them my gospel is intended for everyone and it's another yet another manifestation of this idea of Jesus that the first shall be last and the last shall be first now You'll recall that uh, Jesus was pulled off the cross on Friday. He arose on Sunday because the Sabbath was on Saturday. So why is it then that we worship on Sunday? You know, there's evidence in the book of Acts that the, the early disciples, they did the same thing. In fact, they gathered together on the first day of the week to partake of the symbols of the Lord's death why would they have abandoned the worship or the veneration of Saturday as God's holy day rather than and change that for Sunday? I had this question come up on my mission, and I've mentioned this before. Uh, I was teaching a family. My, my companion and I were teaching a family at the same time as two missionaries from the Church of the Seventh-day Adventists were teaching them. And in Portuguese, which was my mission language, the word for Saturday and Sabbath are the same word. So it was very difficult to refute the idea that when the scripture says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, it actually says remember the Saturday to keep it holy. And then they turned to us and said, why don't you obey this commandment? The commandment is to keep Saturday holy. And the 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 woman, the mother of this family turned to me and she said, "Yeah, why don't you?" So I had this burning question. And I, I felt like it was right that we worshiped on Sunday, but I didn't exactly know why. And uh, I'm going to date myself here a little bit, but uh, I had the conference report from October conference of 1993. And in that conference, uh, Elder then Elder Rush, Russell M. Nelson gave a talk called Constancy Amid Change. One of the parts of his talk is about the plans of God. And he discusses the the creation, the fall, and the atonement, and, the, he, and how glorious they all are in their own way, and what part they play in the overall plan of salvation. So he describes the original creation of this earth as a quote-unquote paradisiacal creation. And he describes the fall as a mortal creation. And then the words he uses to describe the atonement, which includes the resurrection, as an immortal creation. And when I read that, I realized that the Jesus rising from the dead was as important, as earth-shattering, literally, right? the There had been two earthquakes to herald it, and that was just in Jerusalem, let alone what happened in the New World. Two, it was an earth-shattering occurrence of creation, where we weren't only created in a paradisiacal way, in a temporary way, in almost like a a placeholder way, where we'd been put in stasis. We were created in an immortal way, and it's hard to say which creation is greater. It's like saying which uh, which side of this coin do you want to take with you? You take them both because they go together so perfectly. They're they're two sides of the same plan, and yet the glorious events of the of easter sunday were so fresh in their minds and were so meaningful to the early saints that they took to worshiping christ and, and and think about this these are not people who grew up as christians they grew up as jews and this would have been scandalous to change the day that they observed, on which they observed the sabbath uh, and we don't we don't have a ton of records about when this might have happened or to what extent they ignored Sabbath worship on Saturday in favor of Sunday and when they might have done this. But it seems clear that their day of worship was indeed Sunday because that's the day Jesus Christ created us in an immortal way and created our eternal life, you might say. So it's as earth-shattering an event as the original creation of this world seems like an incredible thing to say but when you understand when you understand the nature of the resurrection you know how true that is so the risen lord appearing to the disciples was an irrefutable truth an irrefutable proof of his existence and of his of his ascension to the side of god of his identity as the son of god almost as convincing was an empty tomb. But as we see in the 24th chapter of Luke, the, the witnesses that Christ himself chose when given the opportunity to pick from anything in the world were the, the Holy Scriptures. And in this case, the, I think the Old Testament gets short shrift. People don't love it because they feel like it doesn't speak to them. But, but remember that Christ was testifying out of the Old Testament. These are the scriptures that he knew and loved. And apparently there was so much truth in there. There was so much testimony of his of his mission as Messiah and as Son of God and as the Lord Jehovah that it's all he needed. So as Luke showed the, the proof that is in the scriptures and the proof that is found in the burning in our hearts when we feel the Holy Spirit and we're willing to have Jesus draw near to us and walk beside us in our despair is what is the witness that he prefers and that he would choose. And that's the witness that is open to all of us and that, that we all have available and that we will receive if we choose in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.